blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things. Uh, in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Can I say what a great joy it is to be with you today? It is uh, an exciting day to be commissioning a new pastor for your church, and Sue and I are just so uh, delighted to be able to be with you as we do this together. Uh, Sue and I have known Simon and Peter actually for a long time, about the same amount of time as Matt Lehman, who was talking before. Uh, we met uh, Simon and Peter when they were undergraduates, newly arrived in at uh, Trinity City. Uh, so that's in the late 90s. Does that sound about right? Yep. And, uh, and have known them ever since. We were, we were at their wedding and uh, saw them get married. We uh, saw them head off into professional careers, uh, divert into Bible college, joined the staff team in the city back in 2014 and now uh, come down here to Brighton to be your, your senior pastor. So it's been, let me say, what a, what a pleasure it is and uh, how encouraging. And I thought how nice it was. I'd forgotten actually that Matt and Simon and Peter had known each other from those early days. So nice to have someone who just arrived at Trinity as a new convert commissioning someone who is now your new senior pastor from that sort of era. And I thought that's the way it should be, though, shouldn't it? That uh, we're a church that sees people raised up uh, for service in the gospel, uh, people who've had inputs from elsewhere. Uh, you know, I see Simon's parents are here today. Lovely to have them here. But, but just to know that as a network of churches, we've had a big investment in uh, these people, but particularly as we think about Simon and Peter this morning. Uh, just before I jump into the passage we're looking at, I also just want to pause for a moment uh, just to thank uh, Matt and Annika Winter, uh, who've been serving here uh, for a number of years, but over these last few months have been serving as this sort of acting senior pastor while we've been waiting for the Marshmans to begin. And it's a tricky job in a way to be the sort of John the Baptist, you know, uh, you know preparing the way uh, for the one who is to come. Uh, but I know that uh, this community have really been very thankful for both Matt and Annika and the way in which they have uh, served and loved uh, the community here. And I want to add my thanks there as well. I know that Matt's very excited to be working with Simon. They know each other. 
Uh, but nonetheless, Matt, thank you so much for the way in which you have just uh, faithfully served. So as we look to the future, uh, which is really what we're doing today, what should we expect of a new senior pastor? Uh, what sort of dreams and uh, vision does Simon and the leadership team have as they think about the future, think about the next phase? Well, maybe I could ask you who are members here, what are your uh, particular uh, wish list of things you want this new senior pastor uh, to be doing as he starts up in your midst. I, I came across um, an article by Tim Keller that I was reading just this week, and he was, he was just talking about uh, the way in which expectations fall on pastors of churches these days. Uh, here are some of the things he said. Today there's even more pressure than ever before on ministers to be, in inverted commas, successful. He goes on, uh, today's churches and congregations seek successful ministers and they dismiss less successful ones. It's also true that ministers hold themselves to the standards of success of increasing numbers and expanding budgets. He goes on, the modern notion of ministerial success is not so much about simple church growth as it is about the minister's ability to attract large numbers of people and by his personal appeal to create powerful and religious experiences. And he says, I suppose this shouldn't come as a surprise since it's a direct result of the expressive individualism of modern Western culture. Individuals, uh, we've been taught to be consumers and we go to church if and as long as the worship and the public speaking is riveting and attractive. So, Simon, how are you feeling? <laughs> See, what is, what's the key to a healthy church? Uh, what should our expectations be? What's a successful ministry look like? Now, I want to say, actually, it's not got much to do with the giftedness of the pastor or even the giftedness of the congregational members. Not to do with an ever-growing budget, uh, increased numbers of converts or larger numbers of members. Not that any of those things are necessarily bad in and of themselves, but they aren't the focus as we look to the future. I want to say to you, Simon, this morning, but say to us all, really, I'm speaking to Simon, but you can listen in. Um, I want to say this morning that the key to ministry, Simon, is that you constantly remind us of what God has done for us. Right? That's at the heart. There's an old, old hymn by a guy called Johnson Oatman. Uh, he wrote it in 1897. I don't think it's actually a very good hymn, uh, but the lyrics uh, simply point to this truth. You'll, you'll not, sorry, I've said it's not a very good hymn. It might be your favourite hymn. <laughs> so uh, yeah, my apologies if that's the case. It goes like this. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Now, my humble opinion, we haven't scaled the heights of lyrical achievement in that hymn, but, uh, but nonetheless, I think it actually does capture the truths of Ephesians chapter 1, 
that we just heard read for us just a little while ago. That's what I want to dive into. Ephesians chapter 1. If you've got it open in front of you, that's great. But if not, just listen in. Chapter 1, verse 3. I think verse 3 is the, uh, possibly the key verse, actually, in the whole of the book, uh, but certainly of this section. It reads like this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, you, you need to understand that uh, Paul the Apostle, as we head into the opening here, the first 14 verses, the experts all say that this is one just incredibly long sentence. And if you try just in your own private time to read that through without taking breath, you'll get a feel for what's going on. Uh, the Apostle is just overwhelmingly excited by what is going on. Verse 3, though, is at the heart of his excitement. I want you to notice that he talks about spiritual blessings that we have by virtue of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that is, we're related to God because of God giving us his spirit so that we can actually know him. Notice where we're blessed, verse 3. Notice the location of the blessings in the heavenly realms. Heavenly realms. This is the only spot in the whole New Testament where that phrase appears, in the heavenly realms. And it occurs a number of times in this letter. Here in verse 3, in verse 20 of the first chapter, chapter 2, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 10, and chapter 6, verse 12. And this, this focus on the heavenly realms and the locus of our thinking as people is in such contrast to the age in which we live isn't it? Uh, we are drip-fed a philosophy that the blessings that really count, they're found in this world. Is that not true? Like the uh, federal election, what's it being waged on? What are the big issues? And you think about it, it's to do with budgets, um, cost of living, uh, can interest rates, can we afford houses? Uh, all of those are the issues that dominate our politicians right now. But for Paul the Apostle, his thinking isn't tied to this world. You know, here in chapter 1, he's not celebrating a uh, you know, fat-free diet with a secure investment portfolio and the assurance that he has enough superannuation to live on, low interest rates, a secure job, big house, you know, two, two kids and a labradoodle. You know, that's not the focus of the Apostle Paul at this point. He says the blessings that shape our lives, they are heavenly, right? Heavenly. I read an interview with an actor, uh, Michael J. Fox. You'll, you'll remember him uh, starting Back to the Future, that trilogy from a long time ago, but, but appeared in lots of films over the years. He suffers with Parkinson's. You would have picked that up in some of the more recent roles uh, that he's had. So he was interviewed about how he was coping with it, his attitude towards this sickness, which is robbing him of function and will eventually take his life. Here's what he said. The end of the story is you die. We all die. Now, let me say I'm with him to this point. You know, I think he's, he's accurate at this stage. Then he goes on. So accepting that fact, the issue becomes one of quality of life. I want to say, no. The real issue is having a relationship with God 
that endures for all eternity. And that's the point that the apostle is making here. Heavenly blessings. That's where we're blessed. Notice when we're blessed. Because uh, you might say, me having said what I've said, that typical sort of pie in the sky when you die by and by sort of spiritualized thinking, you know, just sort of, you know, people are so focused on the future uh, that they overlook the struggles in this life because heaven will be so wonderful. Look in verse 3 again. Notice what it says. He has blessed us. Not he will bless us, but the fact that if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit, then you are blessed now. This is the reality. And notice the source of the blessings. So as you listen through the, uh, the reading of those first 14 verses, did you hear the drumbeat that was going on all the way through? All 14 verses, did you hear it? Here's what it was. Verse 3, in Christ. Verse 4, in him. Verse 5, through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, grace in the one he loves. Verse 7, in him. Verse 9, in Christ. Verse 11, in him. Verse 12, in Christ. Verse 13, in Christ. Do you think he's trying to make a point? You know, I think he is. All the blessings of ultimate importance are ones we have because of what God has done for us in his son, by his life, by his death, and by his resurrection. Simon, my dear brother, what I want to say to you is you need to help us take time to count our blessings and keep reminding us to do that. And what I want to do is look at some of these blessings in more particular and to think what they are. Verse 4, it says we've been chosen by God. Now later in verse 5 and verse 11, it speaks about being predestined. God is the sole architect of our relationship with him. Now, can I say this verse and others like it in the New Testament have created huge controversy? If you've got a Bible study group that's falling asleep and you're not sure, raise this as a topic. You know, did God choose us or did we choose him? I guarantee everyone will wake up straight away and everyone will have an opinion. The debates rage around things like, is it fair that God should choose some and not others? Uh, surely... Come on, Paul, surely we do choose to follow God. That's the reality, isn't it? Or if it is God that chooses us, then obviously it can't be my fault if I'm not a believer. You've, if you've been around for a while, you know those debates. And can I say they're not unreasonable questions, which I'm sure that your new pastor, Simon, will gladly answer for you at the end of the gathering. Okay, so... Uh, that's why you have a new senior pastor. This is uh, excellent, really. But, but what I want you to pick up here is that they, those questions, they're not the focus. This truth is not here to raise theological questions to get our brains moving and agilely wrestling with. That's not what's going on here. The point being made here is that the God of the universe 
If you're a believer, the God of the universe has brought you into a relationship with himself. And you know the emotion that that should evoke in you? Oh, celebration. Incredible excitement and thankfulness that God in his kindness should choose you to be in his family. That's why it's here. You can't take any credit for that at all. But what you can be is overwhelmingly thankful that God has done that on your behalf. Notice when you're chosen. Verse 4 just reinforces the who chooses who. When did it occur? Well, before the creation of the world. That's when it happened. That is in the mind and purposes of God. And what do you say? Well, praise be to God. That's what you say. It talks about adoption, verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to sonship. You need to understand the culture of the time meant that uh, it was actually the inheritance coming through the male line that occurred. That's, that's the way in which things were passed on. So you might think by talking about predestined for sonship, there's a sort of a sexist, you know, patriarchal element that Paul is introducing into his talk. Can I say it's actually the opposite? This is quite a radical thing. It is saying males and females have both been adopted as sons, that sort of status, in the family of God, full inheritors of the blessings of God. But notice it's adoption. It's not natural-born. So and I, we have three adult children, all uh, natural-born, and... What that means essentially is we're stuck with them, okay? Uh, that is, they sort of got born in our, our family and basically we got what got delivered, literally. Uh, that's just the way. But adoption works very differently. So when you adopt, you make a positive choice to bring people into your family and you know what you're adopting into your family at that point. That's the point here. None of us deserve adoption into the family of God. The way the Bible paints it, we're all rebels against God, but God in his kindness chooses rebels and brings us into his family. Now, if you're someone who says, I'm in a relationship with God, you know that to be the case, then you know this is true for you. Uh, For me, it occurred when I was a third year of a degree at Adelaide University, I went from being someone who was running as fast as I could in the opposite direction of God, from God, and God, by his great mercy and generosity, convicted me of my sin, of what he'd done so that I could be forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ, and brought me into his family. He adopted me. And that is just such a wonderful, wonderful privilege. Have you had that experience of adoption? So if you have, you know how good that is. And if you haven't, and can I say, you really want to find out what it's all about. How do you get into this relationship with God and experience his great kindness to you? And of course it happens through forgiveness, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Uh, This idea of redemption, it's a sort of culturally 
clunky word for us because it draws on the slave market of the first century. It's a different slave world, uh, but nonetheless you get the idea with slavery that you belong to another person. Right? That's, that's the sort of context that we're talking about. And slaves in the first century, they could be bought out of slavery for a certain price. Uh, they could be uh, released from that slavery. And what the Bible is telling us here is that we're all slaves to sin. And we're all people who reject God. But Jesus has paid the price for our redemption, the shedding of his blood on the cross, so that we can be released from slavery. Grace, the wonderful gift from God. Friends, we're just skimming through some of the riches and the depth of these blessings. Uh, but Simon, uh, let me say, my dear brother, uh, your job is to keep reminding us of these truths in much greater depth than I can do this morning. And you'll do that as you wander your way through, uh, won't wander, I'm sure, teach methodically through Ephesians you know, in these coming weeks. That's right. But, but just keep lifting our eyes away from ourselves. Interesting, the, the article from Keller talks about that self-focused individualism that's a feature of Western 21st century world. I think that's true. Um, generally, our world is framed around the impact on me. Isn't that the way the political campaign has been waged? How will our policies affect you? Okay, uh, that's self-focus. How radically different is the picture that the Bible paints? It's all about God and what God is doing. And so I'm, I'm going to do a couple of things. One is to keep reminding us of God's eternal plan. Uh, the chapter is full of the blessings that we have to celebrate. But you would have also picked up the panoramic picture of what God's doing for all eternity. It's unusual to have a short passage like this that captures eternity to eternity, but it does. Verse 4. Remember it talks about before the creation of the world. You go to verse 10. Here's the other bookend. Until the times will have reached their fulfillment, the end of the age, from before the beginning of time to the end of the age, this is a snapshot of what God is doing. And what's he doing? Well, verse 9. He's made known to us the mystery of his will for all eternity. I mean, how good is that? Don't you love knowing secrets? Right? This is the secret, God's eternal secret. And what is it? Well, you pick it up actually beyond our, our section, verse 22. God has placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church. Now, Simon, keep reminding us of this. <laughs> we are busy people. A number of us are tired and struggling. There are some of us who have heartache and grief, uh, heavy hearts. We've got friends or family who think we're absolute idiots because we're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and we live with those sort of pressures. Uh, we live in a conflicted sort of world. But my brother, keep reminding us that these blessings, they count for eternity. And that what we do as we gather here, Sunday by Sunday and during the week, is actually at the heart of what God is doing for all eternity. 
Most of what we do actually doesn't last at all. But friends, this, what we do now, what we remind ourselves now, this actually does count. Yeah, if you think about, say, a non-Christian friend or family member, maybe neighbour, uh, maybe someone who sees you get in your car and roll, roll down here every Sunday morning while they read the paper and have breakfast in bed. You know, uh, Do you think they think you're the smart people? Probably not. But can I say you are? I mean, not clever in yourself, but you're actually brought in uh, to the secret on God's plans for the universe, which involves you. I love the way uh, the message written by Eugene Peterson transfers, uh, translates this, this idea at the end of Ephesians chapter, chapter 1. He says, The church you see is not peripheral to the world. He says, The world is peripheral to the church. What counts is the fact that God is building his people for all time. And actually everything else is secondary to that. Uh, brother, keep reminding us of this. Uh, give us perspective. And then make sure you help us to grow in our appreciation of God's grace. There can be lots of plans and strategies and ideas and metrics and all sorts of things you can apply. Uh, but they're not essential. They're secondary to the truths that we're looking at here. There's a guy called Randolph Hearst, who is a, a philanthropist, 20th century American businessman, uh, incredibly, incredibly wealthy. He had a great art collection, and uh, one day in a magazine he saw a piece of art that he thought, I just must have it. And so he got his, uh, his curator uh, in, or his agent, and he said this, I must have this, go and buy it, I don't know where it is, go and buy it, and I don't care what the price is, I've just got to have it. So the guy got sent out, two weeks later, came back and reported to Hearst, and uh, he sort of sheepishly explained that he wasn't able to purchase this painting. And Hearst was just angry, he said, well, go back, offer more money. And the, the guy said, no, no, you don't understand. He said, it is already in your collection. You already are the owner of this piece of art. Uh, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think it's easy to forget. It's easy to overlook. It's easy to take for granted what we have at the hands of a kind and gracious God. But Simon, help us not to take it for granted. Help us to dwell on these truths, the things we already know, but we need to be refreshed in time and time again. Yeah. Remember when our, our kids, probably a little older than your kids right now, we're out one day, I think we'd just been at the cinema, and uh, we're outside the cinema and I came up behind one of them and just grabbed him and I said, oh, mate, I love you. Right? And... Uh, he just laughed, which was a bit deflating, really. But <laughs> and uh, he turned around and I said, "Mate, why are you laughing?" He said, oh, "I said I knew you were going to say that. You know, knew you were going to say that." I said, "How did you know that?" He said, "You always say it." Uh, and so I said, "Mate, well, why do you think I'm always telling you uh, this truth? You know, why am I always affirming it to you?" And he said, "Oh, you don't want me to forget it." 
Right? And then he ran off. And then, uh, then he stopped and he came back. He said, but Dad, he said, I never forget. I never forget. Can I say, as followers of our Heavenly Father, don't ever forget uh, what God has done for us in his Son. That's what this chapter is all about. And Simon, here's your job. Don't ever let us forget it. Okay? That's your job. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your uh, just wonderful grace to us in your Son. Father, we thank you that even as we skim read through this chapter, which is just so loaded uh, with these big ideas and big truths, uh, just to see how personal they are as well. All the kindness uh, from your hand, uh, the gift that you've given us in Jesus. And Father, we pray that uh, for whatever time you give Simon and Peter to work here, at the end of the time, um, we, we might be able to talk about uh, the gift that they've been to this church. Oh, but Father, so much more we pray that at the end of that time, we will be delighting more and more in what you've done for us as your people, celebrating your kindness towards us. And Father, we pray that you'll give Simon and Peter uh, just that ability uh, to keep uh, painting you big uh, while comparison, they paint themselves small. Uh, Father, we pray that as a church, we'll keep growing in our knowledge of your kindness to us, your mercy, your forgiveness, the redemption we have in your Son, that every day we'll celebrate these truths. And Father, we pray that you'll be with Simon and Peter as they continue just to point us to you and help us delight in you and help us to press on with serving for the praise of your glory. Now, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.